Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter, the fourth chapter, or find that passage of Scripture in your bulletin insert. We'll use this as a unison reading, and while you're looking for that, let me officially uh, welcome Philip Bunch to the pulpit of First Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. Uh, this is the first Sunday I've been in the pulpit that he's been here in the pulpit with me since I've been gone the last two weeks, and uh, he's all signed, sealed, and delivered as far as Presbytery is concerned. Uh, we just simply have to ordain him and install him at a call meeting of the Presbytery on the afternoon of November the 11th at 4 p.m. here in this sanctuary. So I hope you will be able to attend on that day. It's always a special thing in the life of a young man to be ordained to the gospel ministry. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning to read at verse 12. Let us read together. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator while doing good. Now I realize that for some of you what I'm about to ask you to do will be impossible because you're not there yet. And for some of the others of us it will be hard because it was so far away. But I want you to remember back with me to when you were in high school. And as I say, for some of you, that won't be that long ago. For others of us, it's three or four or six or seven decades ago. But in your remembrances, let's go back to a Monday morning. It was a few minutes before the bell will ring and you're kind of in a group of people that are your friends and you're probably talking about what happened over the weekend. Maybe it was a football game on Friday night. Maybe it was some movie uh, that most of you went to see. You're enjoying your friends and everything is pretty laid back. You think it's going to be a pretty easy week, relatively speaking, when all of a sudden the bell rings and your teacher cheerily 
announces to the class, before we get into chapter 5 today, we're going to have a pop quiz on the last two chapters. And you go, what? What just happened? A pop quiz on the last two chapters. I've read chapter 3, but I've only read a few pages of chapter 4, and as the reality of her words sinks in, you begin to have that terrible feeling in the pit of your stomach that some kind of awful destruction is going to take place and you're going to be part of it. Are you like me? Do you remember how dreaded those words, pop quiz, really were? I will not ask how many teachers here today use those two words. <laughs> but you really can wield the power with those two words. You can make somebody's day go from a great one to a terrible one, just with that mention. You know, as we think about pop quizzes, even though we never knew when they were coming, we knew they were coming, didn't we? After all, whenever you're in the process of earning a diploma or some kind of degree, it should come as no surprise when we have pop quizzes or regularly scheduled exams. Tests are not uncommon at all. Sometimes even an everyday occurrence like in my college calculus class. We won't go there. That's a very sad story. <laughs> we've all been there, and we've all had our share of tests, exams that we knew would come, some of us even oral exams, plenty of term papers, and all the rest. And since that's true, then I want to ask you a question. Why do we get all bent out of shape when we have a test in our spiritual lives. In the Christian life, if we are trying to make our way through the curriculum of Christ's likeness, then surely tests will be as much a part of our lives, spiritually speaking, as they were when we are in school. And that's the point, or one of them, that Peter is making in this passage this morning, especially in verse 12. Do not be surprised at the fiery trial or ordeal, as some translations put it, when it comes upon you to test you. Don't be surprised as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, tests are to be expected in the Christian life. Don't be surprised if God all of a sudden gives a pop quiz. It's interesting how similar Peter here is to James. You know, as he begins his brief letter, you may remember right after the words of his salutation in, in verse 2, he says, Count it all joy, brothers, when you meet various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, that you may be mature, lacking in nothing. In this brief verse from James, we, we learn so much about the, the schoolroom 
of the Christian life, if you will. Like Peter, he makes sure that we understand that trials are a part of the Christian life. Count it all joy when you meet various trials, not if, when. We can also see that these trials or sufferings can come in all kinds of categories and shapes and sizes with varying intensity when you meet various trials. They may be spiritual or physical. They could be financial or emotional. They might be relational or having to do with employment. They may knock on the door of your home. They may knock on the door of this church or your business. They may be sudden like a car accident that happens so fast you just don't even know what's going on or what just took place. Or they may be long and drawn out like a court case or an extended illness. They may be public or private. They may be related to something that you did. They may not be related to any act you've ever committed. And according to James, what's the purpose of those trials? They test our faith. The testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Notice what Peter, he says the same thing here. This fiery trial or ordeal that you're going through is there to test you. And James goes on to make the point that without these tests, our maturity would fail to form. Now, I've used the James verse just by way of introduction because it's so easy to see the nature and purpose of trials and tests and how dependable they are in our lives. We need to depend on tests and trials because they're going to be there. But we must keep in mind in this passage from Peter that he's talking about a specific kind of test, not just any trial from a myriad of sources. And the trial to which he refers is when we suffer because of our Christ-like walk and faith when we suffer because of our Christian witness. We see it there in verses 13 and 14. Rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. That's the truth of God's Word. Right there in 1 Peter 4. Because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. You know, we see this kind of suffering over and over In Scripture, those who are suffering for their testimony on God's behalf. Stephen is a great example that we see in the book of Acts. Specifically, chapter 7. Right before he was stoned to death, you know, he's preaching this great sermon. He's talking about Israel's history. He's talking about the way in which they've persecuted 
the prophets that have gone before them, how they have not kept the law of God, how they've killed Jesus, the Lord of glory. And when they heard these things, we read, they were enraged and ground their teeth against Him. But He, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus at the right hand of God. The Spirit of God was obviously upon Stephen. If he had a vision of Jesus at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and if like Jesus, as he was being stoned to death by perhaps some of the same people who put Jesus on the cross, he's able to cry out, don't hold this sin against them. Just like Jesus, the one he follows. We can also find some of this same attitude of witness in the midst of persecution as we look back over those who have gone before us in our own denominational history in the seceder and covenanter heritage. You should know, if you don't know, that the seceder heritage, which began in 1733 at Garney Bridge in Scotland, that is the start of what is called the Associate Presbyterians. The seceder heritage is the associate part of our name. And then the Covenanter heritage goes back to the National Covenant in Scotland in 1638, where those people were signing this National Covenant, those Christian people with their own blood. That's how serious it was in their lives. And so the Covenanters are the reformed part of our name. And I've spoken before of two covenanters, both women who were drowned at the stake in the 1680s for their emphasis on Jesus as the only king of the church, Margaret McLaughlin and Margaret Wilson. We have a Wilson Tartan in here today. They were staked in a way so that the older woman would die first with the incoming tide in the hope that her death would cause the younger one, she was only 18, Margaret Wilson, to submit. E. Geddes, citing Macaulay's history, says, the courage of the survivor was was sustained by an enthusiasm as lofty as any that is recorded in martyology. She prayed and sang verses of psalms till the waves choked her voice. That's the 18-year-old he's talking about there. And if you go to Scotland today, you can still see a monument where this took place. Now I submit to you that such a person... And such a witness demonstrates the fact that this young lady knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and the Spirit of God rests upon you. How, how, how else could you be quoting Psalms quietly and calmly while the waters were taking your life away? For me, this 
annual Kirking of the Tartan service gives us a chance to reflect upon persecution. Persecution of all types. I've just mentioned religious persecution that executed two ladies of the Covenanter heritage, both of what we would refer to as lowland Scots. But the Highland Scots received their share of persecution, especially of a more political and sociological nature. In fact, this service, as I indicated to you in my opening remarks uh, during the announcements, this service remembers in some ways the Battle of Culloden in 1746, which took place near Inverness, about 80 miles north of where Stirling, Scotland is today. And while the Scottish army in that battle is referred to as Highlanders, I believe there would have been all kinds of people present, landowners, the poor people, all sorts of folks in that battle. And the British army, using the most advanced warfare tactics of the day, now remember this is in the early 18th century, complete with bayonets, slaughtered about a thousand Scotsmen in less than an hour. And after that, the British crown, in attempt to make sure that the Scottish identity never emerged again, outlawed wearing the tartan in public, outlawed Scottish dances, outlawed anything that would reinforce the clan's unique character. It's the classic story of persecution and oppression that continues to rear its ugly head all the way down through world history, even until today. But if you know anything about the Scottish people, and you do because lots of us have at least part Scottish blood running in our veins, you know we can be a little hard-headed. You know we can be a lot hard-headed. Maybe the Tartans were outlawed by the English, but they would continue to wear them under their outer clothes, especially at worship, and would touch them at a secret signal by the one leading worship. It was a way of saying to the powers that be that you can't change who I am. Only God can do that. You can't tell me not to be who God created me to be. I live by faith in Him. Just like Margaret McLaughlin did. Just like Margaret Wilson. Just like these people to whom Peter was writing. Christians scattered all over the place because of persecution. In fact, Peter wrote saying, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful Creator. Now, we have to admit the first part of that verse is not what we expect. Judgment will begin with the household of God? Why is it going to start with, the, with God's people? Why not with the evil? Why not with the wicked? Why not with those who oppress God's people? Surely this can't be true, and yet that's what Peter says. Judgment these trials, these sufferings begin with the household of God. It's true because, first of all, the church needs it. If trials produce steadfastness and maturity, as we've already discussed, 
from James' letter, then obviously the church is not ever as mature as she needs to be. We need that discipline. We need that growth. We need that opportunity to be more conformed to the Lord Jesus Christ and to share in His sufferings. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, 17, if we suffer with Him, then we will be glorified with Him. But this is also true that judgment begins with the church because God loves us. You know, I used to discipline my children to bring upon them what they would have seen as trials and sufferings because I love them. And I wanted the best for them with their gifts and their skills and their personality. I wanted them to do the best they could in life. And we do that for our children because God our Father does that for us. Proverbs 3 reminds us to not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of His reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom He loves as a father, the son in whom He delights. The writer of Hebrews, he puts that verse into his teaching as well. You know what they say about Scripture that you see over and over in Scripture? God's trying to tell us something there. We shouldn't miss it. If we miss it in one place, we find it in another. But this is also true, the fact that judgment begins with us because of what it accomplishes and not just maturity in our spiritual lives as important as that is, but a mature faith that ultimately helps us to lean on God for all that we need in this life regardless of what's taking place and going on around us in our world or in our own individual lives. Is that not what a mature faith is all about? That we trust in God implicitly. In his commentary on this passage, the reformer Martin Luther said the reason that God imposes the cross upon believers, meaning suffering upon believers, is that they may taste and prove the power of God that they possess by faith. That they may actually see it and taste it and know that it is good. And I just want to ask you, what power of God do you possess by faith? Could you calmly quote Psalms while the waves take your physical life away? Paul told the church at Corinth that in Asia he was so unbearably crushed that he despaired of life itself. He said we felt as if we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Peter knew this God. And Peter's just trying to get you and me and anyone else who reads these words to understand that God is faithful and that God is always there regardless of what we're having to go through in this life.
the last words out of Margaret Wilson's life, mouth, that little 18-year-old girl, was Jesus is mine. Let me go to him. It was something like that. They were trying to revive her. They were trying to get the authorities to believe that she had submitted. They were trying everything else. She knew. She knew God is faithful. And she was ready to go to Him. And Peter knew this God. He experienced not only the transfiguration of Christ, he was around for the resurrection. He ran running to the empty tomb. He saw it. He worshipped the risen Christ. He saw the places in His hands where they nailed Him to the cross. And He totally trusted in this God whose power raised Jesus from the dead and He calls His readers, He calls you and me to do the same. Entrust your souls to a faithful Creator. That's what He says. That word entrust is a banking term. It means deposit your soul with God. We take our money and we deposit in the banks because we believe the banks will be there next week and next year and ten years from now. That's what Peter is saying you and I need to do. And the reason that's true is because we see Jesus do it Himself right from the cross. Father, into Your hands I commit my spirit. He deposited his soul with God the Father. May you and I do the same to his honor and glory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we thank you for the words from Peter, the words from James, the words of others. In your holy book that help us to know how to face suffering and trials when they come. And we thank you for the way in which we see that you are a faithful God over and over again. And not that we just see that faithfulness in other people's lives, but that we have experienced it. And that these are the kinds of stories that we need to be telling to those around us who do not know you. Stories that proclaim your glory your power, your faithfulness at work in our lives. Those times when there was no way out and, and you provided a way, just like you did with the children of Israel at the Red Sea. And dear Father, we've all had those Red Sea moments in our own lives where you came seemingly from nowhere and provided salvation. 
And we thank you for that. And we thank you for your love and mercy poured out upon us in Jesus, the gift of your own Son. And we thank you for your Holy Spirit and for the way that He empowers us to face those trials and those times of suffering. And we thank you for your faithfulness to each one here today. And we thank you for those who have gone before us in the faith and have showed us how to live faithfully in the times of persecution and trial. We thank you for this wonderful heritage that we have as your people and especially as within the church the, to be Associate Reformed Presbyterians. We thank you for those who have gone before us in this denomination and were willing to lay down their lives to proclaim Jesus as the only King of the church, to proclaim that Scripture is the rule of faith and belief and not what any monarch says. And dear Father, we thank you for your presence in our midst today. We're thankful for your healing power to the sick, for your peace and assurance to those who are grieving, for your wisdom and guidance for those who are searching and having to make difficult decisions. We're thankful for the way in which you continue to watch over our children and our young people and keep them safe and protected. And we thank you for the work of revitalization in this place and all that your Holy Spirit is doing to cause our hearts to draw closer to you and to the work of your church. And dear Father, on this Lord's Day, so close to what many in the church today refer to as All Saints Day, we take a moment to remember those who are no longer in the visible church since this time last year. We remember with affection and love your faithfulness at work in the lives of these people I will name. And we thank you for the way in which you continue to bring their families comfort and peace. We give you thanks today for Juliet Bryce, for Ida Toper, for Faye Hoke, for John Davenport, for Ernest Wilkerson, and for Leonard Williams. We thank you for all the many different ways in which you worked in these people's hearts and lives and for the good example that so many of them uh, provided for us, even that of perseverance. And dear Father, as always, we thank you for the joy that is ours in Jesus Christ and for his glory that will be revealed to this world fully.
And we pray that you would help us to live in such a way that we're ready for that day when he returns, whether it be sooner or later. We ask your blessing upon us to that end. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You'll notice in your bulletin today that instead of the Apostles' Creed, we have a a brief section of the Scots Confession for our affirmation of faith. Let us stand together as we read these words. As we believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, so we firmly believe that from the beginning there has been now is, and to the end of the world shall be one kirk, that is to say, one company and multitude of men chosen by God who rightly worship and embrace Him by true faith in Christ Jesus. This kirk is Catholic, that is universal, because it contains the chosen ages of all realms, nations, and tongues, be they the Jews or be they the Gentiles, who have communion not of profane persons but of saints who as citizens for the heavenly Jerusalem have the fruit of inestimable benefits, one God, one Lord Jesus, one faith, and one baptism. Amen. And I now call forward Linda Bridges who will present a tartan on behalf of all the clans gathered here today. Thank you. Let's pray together. God of our fathers and our God, we ask that you bless these symbols of our heritage and grant that the people who wear them and the clans represented by them and all people here today may do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with you all the days of their lives. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Our hymn of dedication is Amazing Grace, number 275. Our piper will play through one stanza by himself, and then we'll sing the four stanzas together.
And now the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you this day and remain with you forevermore. Amen.